Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Hey, Stuart, Sean, great to have you guys here on the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Podcast. Hey, guys. Great to connect as always, guys. Well, two things I want to tackle. We always try to kind of uh, give you two big slices of uh, the week that was. The first, you know, we love political economy at the hub, the intersection of politics and policy with the economy and economics. So we got to talk about what happened in the UK this week. Uh, wild moves there in currency and bond prices and financial stability. Is this a kind of harbinger of what's to come to? smaller economies, possibly Canada's too, in this era of surging interest rates and a desperate fight against inflation. And then the back half of the show, I want to bring in Amal Atar Guzman, the producer of this podcast, but also a valuable member of the Hub team who wrote a terrific piece kind of wrapping up our empty office series that we've had going for the last, uh, really since the beginning of the month, since Labor Day on the return to work or lack of and its implications. So guys, let's start with the UK first Sean, um, to begin with you, I mean, how do you square this? You have a central bank where we've got reports on UK inflation of 10% annualized, who's now stepping into the bond market to artificially suppress long duration yields. So the yields that are correlated to mortgage prices, therefore to home values, it seems like, uh, what's that expression? Cutting off your nose to save your face. I mean, they have an agenda to fight inflation, but they're actually now exacerbating inflation by suppressing the borrowing costs of whole swaths of the, U- of the UK economy. Yeah, and of course, this has been a, a criticism that Pierre Polyev and others have made about um, the interrelationship between fiscal and monetary policy in Canada over the past couple of years, that um, one of the constraints on fiscal profligacy has always been, um, to say nothing of kind of corporate profligacy, has always been um, the market test. You can't lie to markets. Um, and so this effort on the part of the central bank to, in effect, kind of minimize or blunt that constraint, um, you know, throws the whole kind of system into disarray. I'm going to stake out some controversial territory this week, perhaps not as controversial as, as last week when we talked about, among other things, you know, the, the kind of cultural war manifesting itself in Ontario over this um, transgender teacher. But let me just say, I, I'm prepared to make a, a partial defense of the truce government's um, uh, fiscal package uh, announced over the past several days. Um, you know, I think that the energy subsidies, you know, is, amounts to, in a way, throwing good money after bad, although in the context of the, the Russian-Ukraine war, there, there, there may have been a justification for something more targeted. But on the tax cut side, I mean, one of the criticisms that we've been levying at the hub at governments around around the world is that there's been too much focus on the demand side of the economy at the precise moment that we're trying to address 
uh, the underlying cause of inflation. I think some of the more ambitious tax cuts to try to boost you know, economic activity and the productive capacity of the economy, in effect, uh, a, a quintessential supply side agenda is actually where policymakers need to focus. Um, Fair enough, Sean. I- but let's let's remember that these are completely unfunded. So they they are they're, they're, There's not a commensurate reduction in government spending. This is this is right on the deficit. This is right in the bond market. You got to go out and convince private buyers to sign up for what are called gilt or UK bonds in a high inflation environment with a plunging currency where you've shown no inclination. In fact, you've expanded the size of government significantly through your energy bailout. Precisely. As I said, I'm only prepared to make a partial defense. And as you say, um, that other side of the equation is fundamentally missing from this package. Um, The net result by putting these tax cuts on the proverbial credit card, the UK is going to push, according to some estimates, debt to GDP up to nearly 100%. Um, So I think that's exactly right. Had this been a funded package, I actually think there's a case that it's precisely the kind of thing that governments ought to be doing to try to address the supply side of the economy after two decades, uh, Rudyard uh, and Stuart, of essentially kind of a demand side policy um, that has left us in economic stagnation and now 40-year highs in inflation. Stuart, one of the uh, the excuses that the uh, Bank of England gave to implement this extraordinary kind of bailout of um, you know the political agenda of the newly elected trust government was, in effect, to sound that that pension funds, a number of pension funds, were seemingly close to liquidation. <laughs> what liquidation means is it means like Lehman Brothers time, where you're on the wrong side of a series of trades. You get these things called margin calls, which potentially can be infinite. And there were risks here of major UK pension funds going under. I guess I just, I wonder like, whoa, who's allowing pension funds to engage in, you know, complex leveraged derivative and other strategies that put them at that risk. But maybe that's a debate for another day. I guess my question for you, Stuart, is, you know, Liz Trust out today, Friday, the 30th, with a ringing defense of these tax cuts and their necessity, no backing down, and a Bank of England that now is under increasing pressure to do a full 1% rate hike. So this bizarre thing of raising borrowing costs on the short end, lowering them on the long end, actually called yield curve control. It's something we did after and during the Second World War in a lot of advanced economies. But many people commenting this week that you know, there's possibly another shoe to drop here. Um, and the trust government seeing Tory backbenchers restive. I mean, she had a holiday. What? It lasted two weeks. It's like a trip to Brighton. And now she's back into the heart of Boris Johnson's, you know, toxic caucus. Well, I, I think for Liz Trust too, I mean, that entire honeymoon period was overshadowed by the Queen's death and funeral. So she's had basically no time to do anything here. And I think um, the thing that probably fascinates me the most about this is the political incentives in the British system, um, where there's just this strange, I don't think that many people in the Conservative Party of Canada are sharpening knives for Pierre Polyev at this moment. I think there's a lot of people going, you know, let's try and get something positive out of this. Maybe we can take down Justin Trudeau. Um, But I do get the sense that almost the minute that uh, trust came to power, there was people going, 
how can we come to power now? And we had a columnist, Blair Gibbs, who wrote a few months ago in the middle of the summer before even this leadership race was over saying, you know, don't count out Boris. Boris didn't just go off to the country and, you know, stay out of trouble. He's uh, politically sort of garnering support behind the scenes. And, you know, it wouldn't be a crazy scenario if in the new year we're looking at a new leadership struggle, um, which is just kind of the crazy, you know, sort of like caucus um, shenanigans you see in the UK system. Um, I, I think broadly, too, we're seeing this cost of living, this inflation issue, much easier to be the opposition uh, in a situation like this. And I think that Pierre Polyev is finding that um, it's really easy to criticize. It's really hard to solve this problem because you know a substantial amount of it is out of your control. I don't think that what the trust government is doing is very smart um, given the political incentives here, because um, if you look at the polling, um, labor is surging. Um, this does look like debt financed giveaways to the wealthy. However, we look at it in terms of policy, the political optics of, of this are really bad. And it almost is that cherry. And I know that she kind of wanted to do the, the Thatcher image, um, but I just don't know if that works right now. I remember reading Stephen Harper's book a couple of years ago where it said, let's maybe not worry about the top end. Um, let's not worry about cutting the top end tax rates, uh, especially based on debt, because in the time of Thatcher and Reagan, those rates were way higher. It made a lot more sense to cut those back then. Um, and, and then that's nothing to say of you know the political effects of this that we're seeing now. Can I just wait for a second? Yeah, yeah. I just want to bring it back me. to Canada if we can, because I think there's a lot of, uh, Sean, overlap here between Canada is also a small economy. Let's, let's remember, smaller than the United Kingdom. We similarly have seen a, a spectacular uh, sell-off on the Canadian dollar over the last uh, week or so. I'm, I'm a little worried, Sean, that we're starting to see some of the, the pressures of this incredible inflationary moment beginning to kind of bear on the Canadian economic model, which is equally highly indebted, uh, equally debt financed in terms of uh, government expenditures. What's your advice here, uh, both to the government, Sean, but maybe also to Pierre Polyev? How does he not end up in a kind of Liz Trust you know, conservative fantasy land, which I've written about and railed against, which is, yes, you know, lefties have MMT, modern monetary theory, but conservatives sometimes can be even worse. They can engage in kind of rampant tax expenditures that are just as uh, uh, bizarrely uh, supportive of deficit spending, but on the basis, again, of often po bad political optics looking like they're bailing out the wealthiest and most fortunate in society. Yeah, there's a lot there, as there was in, in Stuart's observations. I just just a couple of quick points. You know, the first first is, um, you know, we've had a bit of a holiday from history over the past several years. Um, you know, we've been able to pay attention to a lot of uh, secondary and peripheral issues um, and kind of take our eye off the ball when it comes to economic growth. Uh, you know, one wonders if this current moment um, is going to uh, cause a, a kind of a, a real focus on the part of Canadians uh, on what ultimately really matters. Um, you know, in an upcoming episode of Hub Dialogues with Marion Tupi, he says the difference between 2% growth and 3% growth isn't 1%, it's 50%. And, you know, it seems to me um, there's going to be a renewed appetite on the part of Canadians to uh, zero in on, on economic growth. And that may be uh, in the interest of Pierre Polyev. Um, 
There's just a second point quickly I'd make. Again, uh, this is a partial defense of what we're seeing in the UK, but one conceptual reason that I'm that I, I like what's happening is that guys, you know, when you do public policy school, as Amal has done, you learn that uh, there are different policy priorities. One is economic efficiency. Another is equity. And uh, both are important, of course. Uh, but it seems to me we've spent better part of the past several years focused exclusively on equity, and we haven't had enough attention paid to the issue of economic efficiency. Yes, of course, the overall tax and transfer system ought to be on balance equitable, but not every single policy choice that governments make need to advance the goal of equity. Some ought to be focused on, on economic efficiency. And so in that sense, kind of challenging this political orthodoxy that really is hung over policymaking across the Anglosphere about this emphasis on equity, I think is a healthy development. Um, and I hope that we'll see Pierre Paul and others sort of make a more full-throated case that, well, the ultimate goal needs to be an equitable society. Equity can't be delivered without mm -hmm. economic growth, without yeah, yeah. A, a fast rising yeah. economy and the job creation and, and the government revenues yeah. it throws off. So in that sense, uh, again, I'll make a kind of partial defense of what of what we've yeah. seen from the trust government. So my only contribution here is, you know, pro tip to uh, hub roundtable listeners like watch currency because currency in a sense, currency FX markets are in some ways the last truly free markets in the world. Everything else, as we know, has been serially manipulated by governments and central banks. Central banks, yes, like the Bank of Japan recently can intervene in currency markets, but those interventions are temporary and they're not usually very effective. What you're seeing right now around the world is a tell and it's showing up in currencies. It's showing up in the plunging uh, Japanese yen, in the plunging uh, euro, in the plunging pound. And I worry a little bit the last 10 days or so, the plunging Canadian dollar. What that's showing you is that investors uh, are around the world are saying when it comes to the allocation of their capital, they don't want to hold assets denominated in those currencies. That's partly, yes, the relative strength of the US dollar because interest rates are higher and going higher in the United States. But it's also a comment, a verdict on the fiscal and monetary policies in those regimes. There's no coincidence that both the Bank of Japan, uh, the ECB, the European Central Bank, and the Bank of England are all in this bizarre scenario of having 10%, uh, well, not Japan, but Europe and the UK, 10% inflation and, and effectively uh, overnight interest rates uh, of you know a percent and change. In other words, deeply negative real rates. Bank of Japan going even further and refusing to allow its overnight, right, its overnight uh, borrowing rate of a quarter of 1% to rise at all. Um, in a sense, stoking, trying to stoke inflation in what's been historically a, a kind of uh, disinflationary Japan, but we're seeing again, a collapsing Japanese currency. So keep an eye on currency and keep an eye on the Canadian dollar, because this is a source of, of stress for us. If we don't defend the dollar through higher rates, higher interest rates, we import inflation. The majority of our food Many of our consumer goods, a lot of our services come from the United States. They come from the one currency in the world that's performing the best relative to all the others. So we have a much more acute inflation importation risk based on a low Canadian dollar. So I'm, I'm predicting, guys, I could be wrong, but I'm predicting another 75 basis point hike by the Bank of Canada. The markets are only pricing in 50. I'm going 75 because I think Tiff Mecklen is sensitive to the effect that 
we have to maintain the value of the Canadian dollar as a, as a store of value in this exceptional uh, surging global rate environment. Stuart, I want to give you the last word in this segment, and then we'll uh, take our break. Yeah, I, I just want to go back to what I was saying earlier, which is that you can notice something about the Liberal government right now is that they have come through a two and a half year pandemic, however long it's been, they were running at full tilt then. They looked a little tired even before then. I mean, they were running out of ideas. Yeah. And now we're running into exhaustion, inflationary <laughs> thing. And yeah. don't underestimate the turnover of staffers. People were people burn out pretty quickly in these jobs. But during a pandemic, they burn out faster or harder. Um, and, you know, everything is kind of running down on them right now. And the conservatives are coming to power with a young you know, exciting leader. Um, this is a, it's a really interesting time for politics. And I think we may be noticing something happening right now. The exchanges in QP, the feeling you get from the government. I mean, we got that feeling a little bit from the Harper government near the end of its tenure. Yeah. Uh, I think we should trust those feelings. I think we're entering a new wave here. And it's kind of, you know, if you're sitting around, you know, just as a normal person feeling a little exhausted by events in the last few years, just imagine how the people running things are feeling. Rudyard, I would just say on the Canadian dollar, you know, as some listeners know, I spend part of my time in New York City where my where my spouse works. So we're following this pretty closely. We might have to speak offline about a, a raise. Uh <laughs> dude, dude, I'm I'll, I'll sell you some credit default FX swaps, man. I want to see you get highly leveraged, Sean. Highly leveraged. Come on, buddy. I I I, I they're not letting me pay for groceries and crypto anymore. And like <laughs> the Canadian my Canadian dollars are soon to follow. So we we should talk. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, um, Amal Adar Guzman's going to join us. She's the amazing producer of this podcast, but also an important part of the Hub team. And she's, unlike the rest of us, in her 20s and has spent um, her professional career uh, with us at the Hub after graduating from the Monk School of Global Affairs, working remotely. So we're going to check in with her, her generation. What is this bizarre work from uh, anywhere and everywhere doing to her peer group and to their own kind of job satisfaction and career expectations. We're going to use this to wrap up what's been a multi-week series at the Hub. We hope you've enjoyed it called The Empty Office. You can catch all those stories on our website, www.thehub.ca. Back after this short break. Thank you for listening to The Hub's podcast. We wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to the Hub's daily email newsletter. We call it Per Diem, and it features some of our best analysis and insights, all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world. Simply visit our website, www.thehub.ca, follow the links to subscribe, and then the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive Per Diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time, no worries. But we think you're really gonna enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via Per Diem, our daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub Podcast. Now back to our program. Hi, Hub listeners. Roger Griffiths here, Executive Director of The Hub. Uh, this is our regular Friday roundtable discussion with Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and today joining us, Amal Atar Guzman, our Content Editor. Amal, welcome to the roundtable. 
Thanks for having me on. Okay, Amal, you wrote a great piece for us today, Friday the 30th, um, about your experiences of kind of uh, the empty office. Uh, we have been running the hub uh, virtually um, during the pandemic. Um, one of the key things I took away from your piece, Amal, was a, a sense in a, of the real trade-offs that you and your generation are feeling here, that there are some advantages to remote work, but you're also not blind to a feeling that you are experiencing possibly and missing out on what Stuart, Sean, and I as kind of older, I'm kind of the officially the old fogey of this group, um, you know, benefited from earlier in our career through in-person, on-site, in-the-office work. Give us a sense of what you feel some of those key trade trade-offs are. I think one of the few trade-offs that you have when you were working remotely is this lack of professional relationships. And that's not to say that like, we don't have professional relationships here remotely on the hub. Like we always check in on each other. But when you're in person, it's just a different vibe. I remember, Roger, when I started working with you at Monk Debates, it was great to talk to you over the phone, but that was like rare in between because we're all so busy. It was during a pandemic and we're all like focusing on the job at hand. I finally met you and then Stuart, then Sean, and then Luke. And everyone else from the hub like a year in and back in 2021 and the the feeling the vibes are just totally different like when you're like over the over the screen you're talking over zoom like yeah you have this some sense of camaraderie but when you're in person there's just something different about it and i think when it comes with young professionals people who are really going into the workforce like we're energetic we're young we're energetic we want to get out there we really want to start our careers we work hard in school to, in the field that we are passionate about. And once you're in the workplace, once you're in person, you're actually talking to people from various generations, especially from people who are older than you, people who may be like a bit, who actually have like real life experience and they can act as a mentor to you. That is so valuable. And sometimes you just don't get that in a remote space. You really don't. Thanks, Amal. Good insights. Um, Stuart, what do you take away from our empty office series? I was surprised at the amount of, frankly, pushback we got to our editorial that uh, Sean helped craft and that I think we all endorse that, you know, in-person work is important, that there are cultural implications, economic implications. But boy, did we hear from a lot of uh, readers of the Hub that, no, they're really happy at home. They do not want to go back to the office. Uh, they want this to become permanent. They want a new kind of reality um, that euphemistically is called hybrid. But uh, those that I think are frank about it, you know, we're talking one day a week in the office, maybe a couple offsite meetings a month. I mean, it, it is a very new, brave new world for work. Yeah, I, I started to wonder actually if maybe just my context was different given the industry uh, that I came up in. So I know this will probably vary from industry to industry, but you know, I came up in my twenties in the image and journal newsroom and it was, you know, the first summer I was there, there was catastrophic layoffs and it was, it was already becoming a shell of its former self, but it was still incredible. Like I came up with um, people like Janet Pruden, who's a global mail writer. One of the, I think one of the best writers in Canada, I would work four to 12 most nights, the, the late shift, which when I tell that to some people, uh, like fellow parents here, they think, oh my God, that sounds horrible. But I loved it. There was no bosses around. We could talk about journalism. We could share ideas. Um, the late night editors were on there. These were guys who had worked for 30 years in the business and had pretty much seen everything. And 
if I was doing anything, editing, writing, there was this sort of constant on the fly coaching that was going on. And these guys just, you know, I don't even think they were doing it consciously, consciously. They were just doing, you know, what they always did, which was, Hey, Thompson, make sure you do this CP style on this. And it never felt like, you know, if I'm talking to one of our guys, I have to call them up or I have to send them an email. And it's like way too formal uh, in a way that it really shouldn't be when, you know, I just want to give them a quick little pointer on something and that kind of stuff it's kind of intangible because you don't realize it while it's going on and you really realize it once it's not there anymore and i i was worried about this in the uh, in sort of the sense that you know news media is becoming more digital in general there are less big newsrooms there are fewer mid-career people going around and there are fewer sort of experienced and everybody who's ever worked in a newsroom will know the kind of weirdos that work in a newsroom. Those weirdos are so important. Like I've learned so much from a lot of these people who are just the strangest people you will ever meet. And I, it's kind of a romantic notion for me, the, the newsroom and the workplace and, you know, the creativity that sparks, even I was at the national post Ottawa bureau, some of my good friends, you know, I made those friends in that bureau, you know, the the random stuff that would come up in the news sometimes we would burn two hours talking about it and then feel guilty about it but really those were great conversations because we were sculpting our ideas about how to cover news so i i really do worry about this for young reporters and even you know now broadly young professionals across all industries that they're losing something and they're never going to know what they missed out on because they didn't have some old editor come up to them and say hey don't do this ever again. And then you <laughs> learn the lesson right away. Yeah. Sean, you've written, I, I think really thoughtfully during this series about uh, the need to kind of pull back for a moment and think about this in the context of class uh, and a new emerging kind of fault line that's running through our society that in a bizarre way is kind of reaccentuating class differences as a result of the phenomena of remote work, just unpack that for us. Cause for me, I think it was one of the big insights that I gleaned out of our, our three week uh, experiment with, you know, uh, commissioning original essays on the return to work and also listening to our subscribers. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I've taken away from this, from this um, multi-week experience um that you you describe Rudyard is is a, is precisely the point you, you raise about the the risk of new fault lines emerging fault lines between public and private sector fault lines between you know what come to been termed as the laptop class versus the working class between those who can work from home and and those who can't um listeners may remember when we kicked off the series we had an empirical some empirical analysis from economist Livio De Matteo on the types of occupations that um, can transition to uh, working from home versus those who can't. And, um, and, and I do think that that's something we need to be mindful of, that a lot of the people around the cabinet table, around the executive table at, in corporations, et cetera, are bringing with them a, a, a perspective that you know, they've effectively self-selected into the leadership class and, um, and they have a completely different work-life experience um, than those who, who have been going into the grocery store or the pharmacy or the long-term care home uh, right from March 2020. Um, uh, so I think that's an important takeaway. And if anything, I hope policymakers are, are more empathetic and kind of cognizant of the potential for those fault lines 
uh, emerging. Can I just make one other quick point? I'll try to be as brief as I can. Um, past couple of days, I've been rereading a book that I'd really encourage listeners to pick up. It's called The Geography of Jobs by Enrico Moretti. It, it really took off several years ago because President Barack Obama recommended it in his annual um, uh, book recommendations. And in a nutshell, guys, it basically tells the story of the agglomeration of jobs in major centers in the first couple of decades of this century. Think of Toronto or Silicon Valley or New York or Boston, et cetera. And it, it's a, it was a bit counterintuitive, of course, because the rise of the internet was supposed to lead to uh, the opposite, to de decentralization. People could kind of work wherever they wanted. And Moretti's point is uh, kind of similar to our last conversation, is that markets don't lie. There's a reason why markets pushed everyone into kind of concentrate these, these clusters because of the kind of multiplier effect of having smart people and capital and technology, et cetera, kind of all clustered or concentrated in certain places. And so I, I worry a bit about the kind of invisible opportunity costs that may emerge uh, from uh, efforts to, to de-agglomerize and, and in effect um, uh, lose some of those benefits that we've accrued over the years of having that kind of concentration of talent and capital and technology, et cetera, um, in, in a, a, a small number of places. Well, I want to give you the last word on this because your, your piece ends with, I thought, a really interesting kind of observation and argument around how racialized communities, you're a racialized woman, and how you and your peers are experiencing um, this kind of new hybrid world and how issues of kind of race and identity are at play here. Um, unpack that for us. Yeah. So given Canada's history, unfortunately, a lot of racialized communities, a lot of people who are recent immigrants who come from like immigrant backgrounds, they say like your parents recently immigrated and then you're like in a new country, you don't have any ties to the community you're in. Or if you come from other marginalized identities, unfortunately, it's going to be a bit of a steeper climb when you go into the workforce in general. And under normal circumstances, even pre-pandemic levels, when I was just preparing to go into the workforce and I'm like starting to apply, I've noticed, unfortunately, it's unfortunate to say some of my white peers will get more job opportunities, more job interviews in comparison to other folks. And it is, that's just the reality that we lived in. But then when the pandemic hit, it just, everything just exacerbated into another level. And then when you start to find a job that's remote, and that's great, like you got a job, you have some sort of living, when you want to have some professional development, unfortunately, you're going to actually have to be in person to actually talk to people. And if you come from, say, like, like Sean says, like, if the class does also play, come into play in this, if you come from a low income background, like historic, like in your family, or you come from any other identity, it's a steeper climb when you go in the professional networking world in general. So adding remote work on top of that is just near to impossible like you really have to hustle and networking unfortunately with the job market with the gig economy it's so important like 20 percent of jobs ever are only online like it's only it's like it's what posts is online 80 percent of jobs if you want to get a job you got to network like crazy you got to network like hell so and one of the things i found really interesting is when we got one of our responses was someone who says oh don't you have someone who has a marginalized identity on your team obviously that person did not do their research because if they did they would see me and that kind of nipped me off and kind of ticked me off a little because they said, well, reporting has shown that marginalized folks have better job experiences remotely. I'm like, yeah, because they probably already have a job and they don't have to deal with 
workplace harassment, but the solution should not be to for us to recluse ourselves in our homes. I'm sorry, I'm not going to let anyone stop me from doing what I got to do. I'm not going to be a social here, here. permit because someone may not like me because of my race, because of my identity, whatever. The solution is you're going to if you want to have these are it's kind of like putting a bandaid solution on a gash like wound. Like remote work is going to solve all that. No, what's going to solve all that is actually meeting people in person and actually making and actually trying to be better and do better with your team and your community. And if someone's does something, make mistakes is, is what it is. You can resolve the issue, but you actually have to, it's better to do it in person than rather than behind a computer screen. Great. Wise words. That's why I like having a mall on the team because wisdom and age, certainly for me do not correlate, <laughs> uh, but they correlate in an uncanny and kind of scary way for a mall. And that's why we, we love having her as a valued member of the hub team and our content editor and the producer of this and all of our podcasts and digital media. So she's got a very bright career ahead of her. Okay, guys, uh, that's a wrap for this edition of the roundtable. We'll do this all again next Friday. In the meantime, check out Amal's piece. And also, if you're looking for something today to uh, just reflect, it is um, a national kind of reconciliation day. We have a terrific piece by Karen Rostool, um, one of our uh, Aboriginal contributors at the hub, a really frank, practical, common sense guide to how we should individually um, do something in our businesses, in our day-to-day lives uh, today, and really every day of the year to acknowledge uh, the role, the place, uh, our gratitude for uh, First Nations communities uh, in Canada. So check out Karen Rostool's piece at www.thehub.ca. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, Executive Director of The Hub. We'll do this all again, as I said, next Friday. So tune in. We always appreciate your participation. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.